the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Tonight, our Bible study from Psalm 68. 68. Each psalm has a title, and the title of this psalm is To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David, a Song. Some believe that chief musician refers to the Lord God himself. Others say he is the leader of choir or musicians in David's time, such as he man the singer or a chef. As in Psalm 65, 66, 67, this psalm also is both described as a song or a hymn and a psalm. And we explained before when that in the title we have the word song means it is a hymn used in liturgical worship, in public liturgical worship. So the Psalms that has in the title the word, word song means they used it in public liturgical worship. And the author of the Psalm is David in which he describes God, but using, while he's describing God, military language. There was a controversy among the scholars as to the occasion of writing this psalm. According to the title, it's written by David to commemorate the victories over the enemies of his people as a whole. So, David wrote this psalm to commemorate victories over his enemies as whole. But others believe that it is written to commemorate certain victories mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 19 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. But others believe that this psalm is written to be chanted during moving the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Odom in Kirjath, Jiram, to Jerusalem, celebrating not only that event, moving the Ark to Jerusalem, but celebrating also the faithfulness of God to give Israel victory over her enemies and to make Jerusalem, the city of God, secure enough to bring the ark into the city. Other find an appropriate occasion for this psalm is victory of Jehoshaphat and Jehoram over Moab, or in the rebel of the Assyrian in the reign of Hezekiah. Other place the psalm in the closing years of the Babylonian exile and others after the return from Babylon, at a date decidedly later than the time of Nehemiah, so after Nehemiah. So we can see here we have wide variety of opinions when the psalm is written and what is the occasion, which means the data we have about this psalm is insufficient for forming a definite conclusion. The psalm begins with the same words that Moses used when the ark set forward 
in his times. So when they used to carry the Ark of Covenant to move one place to another place, certain prayers arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, let all who hate your holy name flee before your face. This was the prayer of Moses, as we read it in the book of Numbers, chapter 10, verse 35. So the, this Psalm 68 starts with the same words, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. So the whole Psalm fitly pictures the way of the Lord Jesus among his believers and his ascent to glory. So we can say also this is a prophetic Psalm. David, by the eyes of prophecy, saw the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, crucified, resurrected, ascended into heaven. So we can call it a messianic psalm about the Messiah that reveals the salvation presented by the Lord to the whole world. Part of this psalm is quoted by St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 to 13, when he get, he who descended is the one who ascended into the highest he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to men. This psalm is not in the book of Agbeya, but in the litany of assemblies, we just heard it right now in the liturgy, include the first verse of this psalm, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let all those who hate his holy name flee from his face. Also in the in the Kahkot, the church quotes some of its verses to be used in midnight praises during the month of Kahk that speak about the incarnation of the Son of God and his work of salvation in preparation for the feast of nativity. Some believe that it is rather difficult to interpret this psalm considering it is the most difficult psalm in the book of Psalms. Why? Because it is packed with symbolic and figurative expression. But Psalm 68 is a lengthy expression of God's power and glory and has prophecies about incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this psalm expresses a triumphant and conquering God that other nations will pay tribute to or fall beneath him. It's a long psalm, 35 verses. From verse 1 to 3, the God of victory. 4 to 6, singing praise to the God of victory. 7 to 10, the mighty presence of God in the wilderness, 11 to 14, celebrating his victories in war, 15 to 18, victory on the mountains, 19 to 23, the Lord's goodness and justice, 24 to 27, the procession of the ark, 28 to 31, confidence for future victories, 32, to 35, a call to all the kingdoms of the earth to praise God. We'll stop today at verse 18. We'll take only the first 18 verses of this psalm.
So let's start from verse 1. As I told you, verse 1, we pray it in the litany of the assemblies. I'm sure most of you memorize it. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who also who hate him flee before him. So the overall theme of these three verses from one to three is the advent of God brings terror and destruction to his enemies. At the same time, brings blessing and joy to his people. So when David said, let God arise, this means the coming of God. So the advent of God brings terror and destruction to the enemies of God, but at the same time brings joy and blessing. Psalm 67 begins with an echo of the priestly blessing in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verse 24. And also, we use the same blessing right now. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, etc. The opening words of Psalm 68 are based upon the prayer used when the ark, the symbol of God's presence in the midst of Israel, set forward in its journeys in the wilderness. Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, as we read it in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. So, in these same words, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, in, in these same words, David began this psalm. So, both are expressions of confidence. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let all those who hate his holy name flee before his face. Meaning, when God arises, his enemies will be scattered and dispersed before him. The same language was also used by King Solomon when the ark was removed to the temple and placed in the most holy place, holy of the holies. This is also a fitting prayer by which to remember the glory and strength of the resurrected Jesus. Let God arise. Arise here refers to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus rose from the dead, all his enemies scattered, none dared opposing him. This arising also can be interpreted for his incarnation and his manifestation in the flesh. Let God arise can refer to his resurrection from the dead as it is interpreted by many church fathers. Also, let God arise can be understood his arising and supporting his people, putting forth his power on behalf of his people against his enemies in all generations, in all generations. St. Athanasius, in his book, The Life of St. Anthony, tells us that St. Anthony fought against the devil with this verse and defeated them. So when the devil attacked St. Anthony, he used to say, let God arise. Let those who hate his name 
flee before his face. Let his enemies be scattered. Who are the enemies here? The Jews who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews who said, we will not have this man to reign over us, which has been literally carried out. For no nation was ever so scattered over the world as that of the Jews. Let his enemies be scattered. And we know how the Jews is scattered all over the world. And let those also who hate him flee before him. Some interpreted this of the guards set to guard the Lord's tomb, who upon his rising from the dead were filled with great fear and scattered and fled to the priests to inform them with what was done. Yes, God's enemies have no ability to stand against him. And that's why in verse 2, David said, As the smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. So he said the enemies are like the smoke who vanishes away or like the wax who melts before the fire. So God's enemies have no ability to stand against him. And this shown by the image of vanishing smoke and melting wax. As smoke vanishes, so wax entirely melts away and disappears before a hot fire. Smoke in general represent an object of no stability, having no power of resistance. Thus, it represents the real weakness of the most mighty armies of men as opposed to God. A wax melts before the fire, meaning it will lose its hardness, its firmness, its power of resistance. So, David is saying, the mightiest armies will melt away before God. This might be a metaphor to the fire of divine wrath and the smoke of eternal torment. So David prays that the wicked would perish just as easily as the wax melts or as the smoke vanishes. If we apply the wicked here to the demons, then it would mean that all their strength and power will be taken away from them. And if we apply the wicked here to men, the meaning is that the oppressors of just will be quickly and severely punished by God. Verse 3, As I told you, when God arises, the enemies will be scattered, will be punished, but the just, the righteous, but let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. So, the presence which brings sadness and destruction to the wicked, in the same time brings joy and blessing to the righteous. While the wicked are driven away like smoke, let the righteous live and flourish and be safe. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. 
the expression here is designed to express great joy joy that's multiplied and prolonged for a long time all these expressions denote the greatness the frequency the zeal the fullness and the continuation of their joy verse 4 sing to god sing praises to his name extol him who rides on the clouds by his name yeah and rejoice before him in verse 4 the psalmist exhorted the people to magnify with psalms with hymns with spiritual songs the eternal and the indescribable absolute name of god yeah is short of yahweh jehovah sing to god sing praises to his name to his name means praise god with the knowledge of his character and knowing him personally when you know person you know his name so sing to his name means be in relationship with god know him sing to god with whom you have a relationship sing to god sing praises to his name this repetition denotes intensity of desire i wish that god might be praised with highest praises and david gave us two specific reasons why to rejoice in god the first reason extol him who rides on the cloud who rides on the cloud in victory and triumph over all the nations also he has revealed himself to humanity in the name yahweh jehovah showing his love and loyalty to his people that's why he said who rides on the cloud by his name yeah and rejoice before him extol means prepare a way for him prepare a way for him as one marching at the head of the enemies or a leader of his hosts isaiah in the old testament calls the exiles in babylon and saying prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god so the same like verse 4 saint john the baptist came to prepare the way of the lord also in isaiah 57 and isaiah 62 the same word prepare the way is used for preparing for the return of israel from the babylonian captivity yeah or yahweh or jehovah is abbreviation of the name jehovah so god's people must prepare a way for him how preparing the way by removal of the obstacles and what are the obstacles for god to have a way into our heart the obstacles are unbelief and ungodliness which hinders god from coming to deliver us and rejoice before him the presence of god is suited to give joy to all the world that he has made 
wherever he manifests himself to his people. Some apply this verse to Christ and his incarnation. John the Baptist came to prepare the way before the Lord. So Jesus being manifest in the flesh, risen from the dead, ascended on high, sat down at the right hand of his father. So having exerted his greatest strength in their redemption, when we understand what God has done for us, therefore people should sing the song of redeeming love with grace and melody in their hearts unto him. Sing praises to honor his name, Jesus, because of the great work of salvation done by him, and give him all praise and glory which should you unto his name. God's greatness is not only defined by military like triumph. I told you there are two reasons why we sing to him. The first reason, because he said who rides on the clouds as a leader of an army. But there is another reason, the other reason in verse 5. Sing to the Lord and rejoice before him because he is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. So, not only the greatness of God is defined by his victory, his triumphant entry, but another reason to praise him is of his compassionate concern and care for the weak and needy. He is the father of the fatherless, because the fatherless needs a father. Yahweh is there. The widows need a defender. God is there. The orphan and the widow are typical examples of the defenseless who are under God's special guardianship. So God from his holy seat in the highest heaven pours down his grace and his mercy, his defense and protection. That's why he said, God in his holy habitation. God in his holy habitation. So though God is in his holy habitation, yet the eyes of his fatherly providence and care run to and from through the earth to observe and help his people when they are in distress. But the fatherless and widow can be understood in a spiritual sense. Those who are called to leave their father and mother for the sake of Christ and the gospel, so they became fatherless. Those who are deserted by their friends and society, God will show them mercy and will provide according to their needs and will come and visit them. Before his ascension, the Lord said to his disciples, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So here, who are the spiritual orphans? Those actually who left their father or mother or siblings for the sake of Christ and the gospel. God will become their father. I will not leave you orphan. I will come to you. Also, he said, he who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father 
or mother, or wife, widow, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Those who love God alone above all and long for the day when they shall see him, it is with them that he mostly dwells and their hearts are his holy habitation. So God will dwell with these people and he will make their heart his holy habitation. Verse 6 God sits the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. So verse 6 describes general principles of God's dealing with men. He gives the outcasts, the wanderers, those who are needy, deserted, forsaken, he will give them a comfortable home to dwell in. He will give the solitary, or he sets the solitary in families. He is a provider of home for the forsaken and a leader of prisoners to prosperity. Those who are bound like prisoners into prosperity. So God is benevolent and kind. And those who have no other friend may find a friend in him. He sets the captives and prisoners at liberty. So who are the captives or prisoners? Maybe the reference here to the settlement of Israel in Canaan after he took them out of Egypt and he led them to the promised land. So they were liberated from the bondage of Egypt to the faith and also he made the rebellions die in the wilderness. Those who rebel against God they died in the wilderness. They did not enter the promised land. Only two persons who came out of Egypt entered the promised land. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Yefin. Or as the Egyptian drowned in the Red Sea. In a spiritual sense, St. Augustine says that God sets the solitary in families means God lets those of one mind dwell in one house like the early christian who had one mind and one will one faith one hope one love of whom the book of acts says they were one heart and one soul lived together in one house saint augustine says he brings out those who are bound by the strength of his arm brings from captivity those that are bound in the chains of sin. So, those who are bound in chains of sin, God will bring them into liberty. God brings men out of their own lusts and sins. Then he said, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Who are the rebellious here? St. Augustine says, the rebellious, those who will resist God, they are deprived of all true comfort, as if they are living in dry land. The difference in condition between those who are the object of God's favor and those who are found 
in proud rebellion against him would be as great as between those who have comfortable home in a land producing abundance and those the wretched and homeless wanderers in the desert. So those who obey God will be like living comfortably in houses in land that produces abundantly. Those who are rebellious are those who are homeless, wretched, wanderers in desert. So the rebellious are left to dwell in the dry land of their own unrepentance and self-will. Also, St. Augustine noted a difference between the bound and buried. He said the bound are they who are caught in chains of their strong desires and lust. So they are bound by their sins, their desires, their lusts. But they are eager to be liberated and they are praying for help. But the buried are those who come to the very lowest grade of iniquity. And when they do, they despise salvation together and they upset God greatly. But in spite of this, God's great love sometimes softens both hearts, brings them to repentance and frees them from the slavery of the devil the greatest ever known or thought of. Verse 7. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, went out before your people, marched through the wilderness, referring to the wilderness of Sinai. So in the central part of this psalm from verse 7 to 28, God is praised for his work in connection with the history of Israel and above all for his work at Sinai in the wilderness. The psalmist proceeds to review the past history of Israel. Why? To prove God's victorious power, his gracious love toward his people and his presence with them and care for them through the wilderness of Sinai on their way to Canaan. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, as we read in Exodus chapter 13, 21, he went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way. So David here is saying, you went out before your people, emphasizing the idea that God was with Israel. He did not abandon them in spite of the many ways they provoked him. Then the word Selah at the end of verse 7, Selah at the end of verse 7, Selah is repeated three times. Verse 7, verse 19, verse 32. Selah is a musical pause used to enforce the thought with which the verse begins. So it's time to reflect, to do meditation on this verse. Verse 8, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. The earth shook. It was moved 
when it began to tremble at the side of God descending on Mount Sinai, as we read in Exodus 19:18, where it said, and the whole mountain quaked greatly when God descended on the mountain. Earth and heaven are in subjection to God. So, as God was with Israel in the wilderness, they were protected. His might was on their side. No other nation could defeat them when they walked with God. The earth shook, means also the trembling of the inhabitant of the earth, how the people feared God when they heard of the wonderful things that God did for his people. God was with Israel in the wilderness and God provided for their needs. He rained on them manna from heaven and the quail. They would never suffer hunger or thirst as long as they walked in God's presence. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. So, this care for them was a way God confirmed the special place Israel had in his heart and plan. He cared for them. He provided manna, he provided the quail, he brought water out of the rock. So as part of that provision, God sent them plentiful rain in a needy time. Verse 9, You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. So when they become weary, become tired, God confirmed that people of Israel are his inheritance. So he sent the plentiful rain. He provided for their needs. Plentiful rain also can be interpreted literally water as when the Israelite passed through the Red Sea, the heaven was raining. Or when the thundering and lightning were on the Mount Sinai at the giving of the law to Moses, which are usually joining with rain. Or in the land of Canaan, which was the land that drinks water from the rain of heaven, as we read in Deuteronomy 11.11. 11. Also, the plentiful rain may mean the gift and blessing that God bestowed upon them in the wilderness. Some interpreted prophetically the, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, especially water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Also, the plentiful rain can be the teaching of the gospel, which is compared to rain, as we read in Deuteronomy 32, verse 2. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. He said, whereby you confirmed your inheritance. Your inheritance, because temporal blessings are common to all. God sent his reign on the faithful and unfaithful, godly and ungodly, righteous and sinners, believer and unbeliever. 
But the grace of the Holy Spirit is given only to the faithful, to the members of the church. And out of church, there is no salvation. That's why many fathers said, whereby you confirmed your inheritance, they said plentiful rain here is not about the rain that God sent to the faithful and unfaithful believers and unbelievers. No, it means the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So after showing by historical reference what God had done for the people in the wilderness, he returns in verse 10. Though without expressly mentioning it to the land of the promise and to what God had done in the land of promise to his people. That's why in verse 10 he speaks about the promised land. Your congregation dwelt in it, in the promised land. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. You provided from your goodness for the poor. Your congregation here in verse 10 means people of Israel who are all united in one body under him. Also it means his flock because God compare himself to a shepherd and his people to sheep. Dwell in it because they submitted to you, not to themselves. They needed you and not self-satisfied. Then God provided from his goodness, by his goodness alone. You, O oh God, provided from your goodness for the poor. It's because of your goodness, not because of their worthiness, not because they deserve it. So God did it not for their righteousness or worthiness, but out of his mere mercy and goodness. God has provided for them when they had no resources of their own when they were poor, oppressed, afflicted people, wanderers, wholly dependent on God. St. Augustine says, The Lord shall give sweetness, and our land shall give her fruit, in order that a good work may be done, good work from our side in response, may be done not for fear, but for love, because we love him, not because we are afraid of him. Not for dread of punishment, not because we are afraid of punishment, but for the love of righteousness. Then St. Augustine comments on the word for the poor. And he said, But the Lord has prepared this for one wanting, the poor, not for one abounding, whose reproach is that poverty, of which sort is another place said, Reproach to these men that abound and contempt to proud men. For those he has called the proud, whom he has called them that abound. So St. Augustine says, God will give this gift to the poor. Poor mean people who dependent on God. They feel they need God. Not for those who are self-satisfied, proud, arrogant, they feel they don't need God in their life. Verse 11. From verse 11, that's what we say in the Kehk Hos during the month of Kehk. The Lord gave the word, great was the company of those 
who proclaimed it. God's word is sovereign. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. As we read in Psalm 33 verse 9. He has only to command and the victory is won. The works of God on which on behalf of his people were so glorious and wonderful that both men and women that heard of the word of God cry out and shout with song of praise to God. Great was the company of those who proclaimed the word of God. So the Lord gave the word, gave the word of the gospel to his apostles to preach the good news. Saint Jerome said it refers to the apostles whom the Lord granted a great power to preach the gospel. The Lord will give confidence to those who preach his word. He did not only give them the word, but he gave them confidence and courage. They will preach with great power, with such strength that their adversaries will not be able to resist or contradict them. And the word company signifies an army. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. So Christ's ministers are soldiers who have a spiritual weapon, mighty through God, and they are made to triumph in Christ in every place. Vast as their armies may be, the enemies, they are powerless to resist God who has infinitely stronger armies at his command. Verse 12, kings of armies flee before his word. They flee and she who remains at home divides the spoil. So he is saying that the message was that God has won a great victory over mighty enemies, kings of armies, as we read in verse 12. And his people, even his weak people, who did not go to the battle, benefited, even though they did not directly fight. That is the meaning of she, this woman who remains at home, did not go to the battle, divide the spoil. She will enjoy the spoil. So, this is the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ. God won a great victory through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And his people, sitting at the home, gain everything through that victory in a battle that we did not directly fight. Spiritually means, this verse means, those who went to the battle, fought and conquered, are the apostles, the confessors, the martyrs. But we benefited from their victory without being exposed to their conflict. He, she who remains at home divides the spoil. Verse 13, Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver, and her feathers 
with yellow gold. Meaning what? The people of God come from humble circumstances as if they are lying down among the sheepfold. Do you remember when Samuel went to anoint one of Jesus' children? And after all the sons were declined by God, so Jesus told him, we have just a young lad among the sheepfold. But this was the one whom God chose to be the king of Israel, David. So those who are humble, are weak, they will share in God's great victory over the enemies and are graced with great blessing and gift. Those who lie down among the sheepfold, they become dove, wings with silver, feathers with gold. And the dove is the church of the new covenant. We become members in the church in this dove. So St. Augustine says, the psalmist now talks to those spoils that rest comfortably among the fold, namely between the book of the old and new covenant. So he said, the people who lie down among the sheepfold mean people who are sitting among the books of the Old Testament and New Testament. Enjoy the divine promises and the work of salvation. These people will become the wings of the church. One beloved dove, her wings covered with silver, and we know silver represents the word of God, while the feather covered with gold, when she flies up high out of gold, gold represents heavenly life, heavenly life. And St. Augustine says, the two wings covered with silver are the two commandments of love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. St. Augustine says, what is the light burden when Jesus told us, carry my burden? The light burden is the love realized in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. For what seems difficult in a commandment, love can be a difficult commandment because it requires forgiveness, requires sacrificial life. So what seems to be difficult in a commandment is light for the one who loves. When you love, you can bear all things, you can endure all things. So when you love, any commandment will be easy for you. It will be easy to forgive. It will be easy to endure. It will be easy to bear. So the sense of this, this verse is that though they have formerly been exposed to great bondage and misery, yet since that time God has changed their condition greatly for the better. Such is the change made spiritually in any man when he passes from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Lying down among the sheepfold, weakness, bondage. You will be like wings of a dove covered with silver 
and her feathers with yellow blue. Verse 14. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalmon. So, when God scattered kings in the promised land, the people of God, this dove, was white as snow in Salmon. So the reference is to the act of God in causing kings to abandon their purposes of invasion or to flee when their own countries were invaded by Israel. David compares the heathen kings scattered by the Almighty God to the believers who came to have the splendor of the snow in Salmon. When the snow comes on mountain Salmon, it gives beautiful scene. Zalmun is a mountain near Shkim, which seems to have had its name for the shady trees upon it, and which also sometimes covered with snow. Snow in Salmon, some interpreted spiritually saying it may mean purity as white as the snow, purity of the church and peoples of God. Verse 15, also this in the Kehkhos. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. So after talking about nations and mighty kings who fled and ran away before the people of God, now David compares Mount Zion and other mountains cherished by the surrounding nation. Bashan, the mountain of Bashan, was a rich and fruitful mountain beyond the Jordan. And it had several tops, several peaks. And the term may include all heights, all the mountains, to the eastward of Jordan, stretching southward as well as northward. But we know mountain of Bashan is not the mountain of God. We know the Mount Zion is the mountain of God. But here he says a mountain of God is the mountain Bashan. Why? So many scholars discussed why mountain of Bashan is called a mountain of God. Some explain the term to denote ancient seat of religious worship. Others take it simply as general term, expressing the splendor and magnificence. So when the people see the splendor and magnificence of mountain Bashan, they praise God. It's elevation like God-like greatness. Also they say that the mountain of Bashan in spite of the fact that God did not choose it to be his holy mountain like Zion, on which, on Zion, he established his temple, yet because of its great height, its beauty and fertility, testifying the word of God, the mighty creator, that's why it's called mountain of God. And others say because it was an impressive mountain, and part of Israel heritage. Spiritually speaking, some say it is the church of God in which he dwells. 
the mountain of Bashan can be a symbol of the church of God. It is compared to the hill of Bashan for fertility and fruitfulness. As the church of God is fertile and fruitful, the same mountain of Bashan. Because the church is a green basher where the people of God become nurtured and prosperous. The great mountain of Bashan, which rises in many peaks, which imply majesty, old magnificence, are represented as looking enviously upon the insignificant mount of Zion, which God has chosen for his earthly dwelling place. So, as if this great mountain is envious of Mount Zion, as we read in verse 16. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is Zion, is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. So, Bashan as an impressive mountain, yet it seems to fume with envy when God favored Zion and chose Zion to his holy place. Like when God chose Saint Mary, this humble, pure girl to be his mother. So Bashan is a symbol of the kingdoms of this world that elevate themselves above and look with contempt upon the church of Christ, waiting and endeavoring to crush it, but all in vain they will not. It's out of envy. But why, why God chose Zion? The choice of Zion is parable to the method of God's dealing with men. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, from verse 26 to 29, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. So when God called, he did not call the wise. Not many mighty, he did not call the mighty. Not many noble, he did not call the noble. Are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, Zion, to put to shame the wise, Bashan. God has chosen the weak things of the world, Zion, to put to shame the things which are mighty, Bashan, and the base things of the world, Zion, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, Zion, and the things which are not to bring to nothing, things that are like Bashan, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands, the Lord is among them as in Sinai, in, his, in the holy place. So, Sinai had been his temporary dwelling. On Zion, he will dwell forever. On this mountain, we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. 
He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in His path. All of which certainly applies to the church. But what are the chariots of God? In, in verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, also in the holy place. The chariots of God are the angels as they appeared in such a form in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. St. Augustine says, Thus a vast number of saints and believers, who by bearing God become in a manner of the chariot of God. So the chariot of God are the saints and believers. By abiding in and guiding this, God conducts it as though it were his chariot unto the end. So God abiding among us, in us, and guiding us, so we are his chariot. The chariot of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands, means innumerable, infinite, immeasurable, and countless. So God is abundantly able to defend the place, to defend his holy mountain, to defend the church, which he has selected as his dwelling. Because the chariot of God are thousands of thousands. Though it has less natural strength, because it is not a mountain with many peaks like Bashan, it's a small mountain, so there is no natural strength. But yet God, who has selected, is fully able to defend it. Why? Because God is among them. It's not only the presence of the angels, but the presence of God himself. The presence of God is the strength of the church. Verse 18, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. This verse was quoted by St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. So David now draws a comparison between God's descent on Mount Sinai to give the old law to the Jewish people and God's ascension to heaven to send from heaven gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. So with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, St. Paul quoted verse 18 and applied it to Jesus, keeping the context but changing one word. St. Paul said, when he ascended on high, led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. In verse 18, you have received gifts among men. So, St. Paul applied this to the ascension of Jesus to heaven. So when he ascended, he sent the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit to his church. So the one word St. Paul changed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, instead of received gift, gave gifts. But actually both have the same meaning. Because when God gave us the Holy Spirit, we became his own inheritance. So God received us as gifts. So he gave gifts, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And he received us to be his people, to be his kingdom, to be his 
inheritance. The triumph of God over the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament prefigured the victory of Christ over the spiritual enemies of the church. So God had achieved a complete victory. He had led all his enemies captive. This would refer to those who were captives by Satan. He led the captivity captive. So those who were captive by Satan, now those who were held in bondage by Satan, now they are rescued by the Redeemer and went with him in triumph to heaven. So in general sense, it may refer to those who had been captive to the devil in sin. He made them captive to himself, transformed a most miserable captivity into a most glorious one. Then he said, he received the gift from among men, even from the rebellious. Who are the rebellious? I told you, received gift when he received us to be his children. But how he received from the rebellious? So, the most stubborn and rebellious enemies were either the Jews or the Gentiles. Yet, to these people, to the Gentiles and the Jews, God gave those gifts, the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we read in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples in Acts 2 and on the Jews, on the Gentiles in Acts 10. So, the rebellious can be the Gentiles on whom the Holy Spirit was poured forth after the Lord's ascension. So the rebellious, being now partakers of the grace of God and his gift, might dwell with the Lord God. So he received the gifts from the rebellious. We, the Gentiles, we became his inheritance. In his churches, the rebellious now, like the Gentiles who became believers, they enjoy his divine presence and have communion with him. And his Holy Spirit dwells in their hearts by faith. You are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit abide in you. As I told you, we'll stop at verse 18. Uh, this concludes our Bible study for tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.